Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Good morning. My name is G.S. Raju. I'm a faculty member at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, and it's a privilege for me to serve as a section editor for gastroenterology. And today, I have the honor and the distinct pleasure of inviting Dr. Lisa Strait. Uh, Dr. Strait serves as a faculty member and professor of medicine at the University of uh, Washington, Seattle. Uh, Lisa has done exceptional work in gastroenterology with a special focus on diverticular disease, especially diverticulitis. She is a lead author on several guidelines for various national societies. As part of the gastroenterology grand round section, we invited Dr. Strait to tell us how she manages a patient with sigmoid diverticulitis. As part of this initiative, she has invited colleagues from Stanford, Mayo, and her own institution. And she is going to present a case and discuss that. Lisa, first of all, I want to thank you. I've learned a, a lot reading your beautiful article on uncomplicated recurrent sigmoid diverticulitis in a 60-year-old patient who also has suffered with irritable bowel syndrome. So let us talk about it. As part of this, it's not uncommon for us to go to an emergency room where an ER physician has already diagnosed clinically sigmoid diverticulitis and ordered a CT scan. So after examining the patient, when you look at the CT, tell us what all are you going to look for to help in the management of that patient. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me to present on this podcast on behalf of my co-authors on some of the more subtle issues when we see a patient with diverticulitis. And particularly to start with the CT, I think this is often the first piece of information that we have, as you said, in the emergency department. And I like to get a CT, although we're not often the initial evaluating clinicians on the first episode of presumed diverticulitis, because we're not always right when we make the clinical diagnosis. There are papers out there that suggest that we give a clinical diagnosis of diverticulitis and are right about 60% of the time. So although the guidelines suggest, but there aren't you know, strong literature to make it a strong recommendation that we get at least one CT scan just to make sure the patient actually has diverticulitis. And then when we're looking at the CT scan itself, one of the main reasons to do it is to look for complicated versus uncomplicated diverticulitis because the treatment algorithms really separate on those two types of diverticulitis. Complicated diverticulitis 
mainly meaning diverticulitis with an abscess or a perforation, but can also represent more chronic complications like a fistula or stricture. The other things that I use for a CT scan is to assess the severity. Even if it's uncomplicated diverticulitis, there are still grades of severity. And one of the things that the radiologists look at and that I use in my practice is the extent of bowel inflammation, meaning how long the inflamed segment is and how thick the inflamed segment is. And the reason that is important is in my practice, I find that individuals who have very inflamed bowel and a long segment tend to do have a more aggressive course and often require antibiotics for improvement. And also those individuals are more likely to have recurrence and that has been documented in the literature. In this particular case, the radiologist goes into the assessment of chronicity based on the CT scan. I have a little bit more trouble doing that in practice because I think many individuals have that thickened colon, especially the sigmoid colon that we call mycosis. And that doesn't necessarily reflect past diverticulitis or even symptoms. So I'm not as sure how to judge that on the average patient. Although in this particular patient, she's had multiple attacks of diverticulitis and ongoing problems. So I took that sort of thickened, spiculated bowel to mean that she'd had ongoing problems. And just another factor to consider when evaluating her case. I think one of the things that I've learned uh, as I was reading is not only to think about complicated versus uncomplicated, but also look at the length of thickening of the colon as another important point. I think it's a great uh, take-home message for me. So once you make a diagnosis of diverticulitis and you think that this patient has uncomplicated diverticulitis, no abscess, no perforation, no fistula, so how do you go about managing this patient? Well, although there aren't a lot of data to support it, I usually, one of the first things I do is dietary intervention. Most patients don't feel well eating a lot in the first couple of days. So I tell patients to take it easy on diet, often just a liquid diet or really sort of brat type diet for the first couple of days until their symptoms start to improve. And then the real question is whether we choose to treat a patient with antibiotics or not. There have been three randomized controlled trials and a number of observational studies to suggest that in uncomplicated diverticulitis, even in those with more severe pain or a fever or white count, we don't need to treat with antibiotics because the time to recovery and the risk of complications such as development of an abscess is the same whether we treat with antibiotics or not. But I think it's that's a hard shift in our focus and the way that we treat this disease. And I really individualize it. And I think the guidelines say to individualize it, but that puts a lot of burden on the clinicians. And so things that I think about are, again, the severity of symptoms, whether an individual has had antibiotics in the past and whether they felt that they were helpful, how severe, how frequent the, the previous episodes were. And I find in my practice, patients really do split pretty cleanly into two different groups. One group says, oh, I absolutely need antibiotics because they made me feel so much better. After three days, I felt better. Now, whether or not they would have felt better without antibiotics, but some people really just feel they need antibiotics. And the other group of patients say, I had so many side effects with antibiotics. When I took metronidazole, I nearly died. It was way worse than the diverticulitis and I'd rather avoid them. Or my last episode was complicated by C. diff or you know, diarrhea associated with the antibiotics. So I really get a sense for how the patient's 
perceives antibiotics, how effective they were, how many side effects they are, they, they had. I, I do tell them the data that most that patients tend to get better at an equal rate without antibiotics. And in patients who haven't had a lot of, a, of frequent attacks or haven't had prolonged episodes, I do discuss more strongly the option of giving it a couple of days. Let's take it easy on your diet for a couple of days, see how you feel. If you're not feeling better, we can institute antibiotics. The other thing about antibiotics is I try to limit the course in the average patient with uncomplicated diverticulitis. There are some data to suggest that four days is as effective as a longer course. And that makes sense since we have studies that say that no antibiotics are effective. So I might say, okay, start with four days. And if you're not feeling better after that, we can extend it to seven days, but really try to limit in the average patient. The patient that I present in this grand rounds is a, is a more refractory patient, someone with smoldering diverticulitis, which we can talk about more. And in those individuals, we don't have many options. And so I tend to use a 14 day course. So there's a big spread on what I do based on the presentation of the patient and their history. And then in terms of antibiotics, based on a, a really nice observational study in a very large database, suggesting that the combination of metronidazole and ciprofloxacin or fluoroquinolone versus augmentin with clavulonic acid, that there were fewer complications and sort of equal effectiveness with the augmentin or the amoxicillin clavulonic acid. So in patients without a penicillin allergy, I tend to give that as a frontline therapy. So there is a lot of push from the American College of Physicians about not starting antibiotic promptly, or maybe wait, as you suggested. So how do you manage those first two days? They tend to have a lot of pain, and how do you manage them in addition to just uh, going light on their diet? Yeah, that's a, a good point. I, I try to use Tylenol and an antispasmodic as frontline and to avoid non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and opiate medications based on the fact that those non-steroidals and opiate medications are associated in large studies with an increased risk of diverticulitis and with perforation in general. That said, the randomized trials on antibiotics, for example, used NSAIDs as pain relief. So in the acute setting, it's not clear, and that would be a good topic for future research, whether NSAIDs given during an acute episode contributes to the small rate of progression to complications, it's not known. But I do try to avoid those two medications and stick with Tylenol, antispasmodic, and just a gentle diet. So this patient has done well and is about to go home. When she's about to go home, are there any particular instructions that you want to give? As And also talk about when are you going to plan the colonoscopy and how do you go about doing that? So I think that the recommendations for patients out in this peridiverticulitis period are confusing because we tell them to back off on their diet, to have a liquid diet, to have a low residue or low fiber diet during the episode. But one of the things that's been shown to reduce the risk of, of incident diverticulitis is a high fiber diet. So really giving them instructions on that transition that for now we're taking it easy because a high fiber diet might aggravate your symptoms, 
But in the long run, eating a really healthful diet, a diet that's rich in fruits and vegetables, high in fiber, low in processed foods, low in red meat might be beneficial for preventing other episodes. So there's a lot of education because there's a lot of confusion for patients around that and and let them judge by their own symptoms whether they feel ready to advance to a more regular diet. And then in terms of colonoscopy, there's some growing evidence and some conflicting guidelines right now. The AGA guideline, which was published in 2015, recommended that every patient after an incident episode of diverticulitis undergo a colonoscopy. And the newer American College of Physicians and American Society for Colorectal Surgery guidelines recommend that really colonoscopy be emphasized in patients with complicated diverticulitis, meaning they have an abscess or perforation. And those guidelines stem from studies that indicate that, well, first of all, the reason we're doing a colonoscopy is because CT is not perfect. It can misinterpret the findings as diverticulitis when actually an underlying colon cancer was present or less commonly inflammatory bowel disease. And that misdiagnosis is much higher for perforated diverticulitis. So about 8% of the time, when the diagnosis on CT is perforated diverticulitis, there's actually a perforated colon cancer. But that rate is less than 2% of a misdiagnosis when it's uncomplicated disease. And so the guidelines have shifted from recommending colonoscopy for every patient with diverticulitis to emphasizing that patients with perforated diverticulitis on the first episode should undergo colonoscopy. So certainly a patient after every episode of diverticulitis does not need a colonoscopy. And the AGA guideline says after initial episode, if a recent high quality exam has not been done. So in my practice, if a patient is of screening age, meaning 45 and older, and they've had uncomplicated diverticulitis, I, I think it's very reasonable to do a colonoscopy. It's reasonable at any age after perforated diverticulitis after the initial episode, but I try to minimize doing a yearly colonoscopy on these patients. So in terms of the colonoscopy, can you share how do you manage them in terms of their preparation? And uh, when you do the procedure, any tricks that you employ? And finally, how do you document your findings? So the first thing is that I'd like to wait until the symptoms have resolved. Most guidelines say four to eight weeks. And so I tell patients when I'm scheduling the colonoscopy or have my schedulers tell them if you're still having symptoms or if you have recurrent symptoms and you think you have diverticulitis, please call our unit prior to starting the preparation. It tends to be quite uncomfortable for patients to have a colonoscopy when they have diverticulitis, active diverticulitis. And there's some suggestion that the rate of perforation is higher in this setting, especially if they've had perforated disease as their presenting feature. I try to, to wait until that's resolved, balancing that with the fact that there's the missed, missed possibility of a missed colon cancer. And then I might give additional preparation in people who have especially severe diverticulosis because Fecalis, the balls of stool that tend to get stuck or form within diverticula are more hard to clear from the colon with a standard preparation. And then in terms of doing the colonoscopy itself, 
I'm a fan of using water insufflation rather than CO2, predominantly, at least in the sigmoid colon. I find it makes it easier to get around sometimes the very tight or tethered sigmoid and also more comfortable for the patients. In terms of what endoscope I use, I, I do endoscopy in a lot of patients that have had a lot of episodes of diverticulitis and have a very tight sigmoid. And I find often that switching to an ultra slim, slim colonoscope makes it easier for the patient and easier for me to get around that tight sigmoid. If an ultra slim colonoscope is not available, an upper endoscope also can work. But I, I tend to preferentially start with a pediatric colonoscope. And then if I find a very, very tight sigmoid colon switch to the ultra slim colonoscope or an upper endoscope to get through that area. In terms of documenting what I find, since I have an interest in this area and how the morphology or the number or density of diverticula predict the likelihood of diverticulitis, and there is some literature to suggest that the more diverticulosis a patient has, the more likely they are to have diverticulitis, I try to document by segment. So at least left colon versus right colon, but I tend to do sigmoid descending, transverse ascending and document sort of in general, using a drop-down menu in our recording software, a drop-down menu for severity and sort of size of the diverticula. And then I certainly record whether there's any inflammation. I think there's a lot of confusion or misconception about what erythema in the colon in the area of diverticulosis represents. There's a tendency to call any erythema segmental colitis associated with diverticular disease or SCAD, which is a very rare controversial manifestation. So if there's sort of that petechial erythema, maybe some edema, that represents past or recent inflammation or even ongoing mild inflammation. So I try to say there was petechial erythema in the area of diverticulosis between 20 and 25 centimeters. I um, tend to try to assess the severity. Sometimes you'll even find purulence around or coming from a diverticula and that represents diverticulitis itself. So I certainly would point that out. I find it a lot more difficult to qualify narrowing of the colon and sort of thickness of the folds because I'm not sure what it signifies. I think many people that undergo a screening colonoscopy who's never had any GI symptoms have a very dense sigmoid colon. But in a patient who's had recurrence, when I'm thinking, could a stricture, could this narrowing or tethering be contributing to symptoms? I do try to note it and always correlate it with the symptoms. Is the patient having bloating? Are they having constipation? Are they having difficulty with bowel movements? Are their symptoms improving after they have a bowel movement? Then I might consider that sort of thick and narrow colon to be more relevant to their symptoms. That's very nice. I'm happy to hear that. And I hope the trainees actually don't just mention diverticular disease, but take time to give the details. Because once you have a patient in your practice, you're going to follow them into the future. So you're likely to learn a lot. So once you've done that, the other thing is I find it difficult to determine the size of the lumen. Having uh, grown up in the era of uh, barium enemas, although we don't do many barium enemas, any comments on the role of uh, barium enema? Because that's something that we can see compared to a CT. 
I still do use a barium enema. Again, I find it difficult to estimate the lumen. I mean, we can use our scope diameter, but it's fairly rare to not be able to get through with the colonoscope, but that doesn't mean that the colon isn't sort of functionally narrowed or tethered. And so in patients particularly where I'm considering surgery as an option for symptoms, and we can talk more about that, but usually these patients have had many recurrent episodes and I take the narrowing and fixation that I feel in the sigmoid to represent recurrent episodes of diverticulitis with scarring. And I think using a barium enema can give us a better sense for the lumen, for the sort of anatomy of that sigmoid colon and how surgery might benefit. I think our surgeons use barium enema more often than we do. And I often have a dialogue with the surgeons and ask them, do you think a barium enema would be helpful here? I'm having trouble determining whether the colon anatomy that I found during my colonoscopy is relevant to the patient's symptoms. So when it comes to barium enema, we are thinking about a single contrast barium enema. I usually use a single contrast, but always good to have a dialogue with your radiologist as well. So this patient actually comes back, although you we think patient has recovered from the diverticulitis, but she continues to have some left lower quadrant pain. We struggle, you know, whether it is an IBS-related symptom or is it a, another episode of diverticulitis? And how do you go about figuring that out? I think this is really tough and we need more biomarkers and, you know, clinical evidence to help guide us. We do know that irritable bowel syndrome is, is more common in individuals who've had an episode of diverticulitis. Probably the pathophysiology is similar to what we see in post-infectious IBS. So the rate is increased somewhere between two and a half and five times. So we are likely to see IBS in this population. There's also the fact that diverticulosis is so incredibly prevalent and so is IBS. So those two happening concurrently, very likely to happen. So I usually look at this quality of the left lower quadrant pain. IBS tends to be something that's very persistent over a long period of time, and diverticulitis tends to be in more short episodes that tend to resolve. So I ask a lot about, have you had periods of complete relief between your episodes of diverticulitis in the past? How much does this feel like you're this, these symptoms feel like your diverticulitis. I do a careful exam looking for any left lower quadrant specific tenderness versus some maybe more diffuse tenderness that you might see in irritable bowel syndrome. And in this particular patient, I was really trying to get across the point that these patients with just multiple recurrences of diverticulitis, stacked recurrences where they had it in January and then again at the end of February or they took antibiotics, they got relief for four days, and then the diverticulitis was back. Those are the sorts of patients that are much more likely to have actual inflammation driving their symptoms than irritable bowel syndrome. So just really, really taking a careful history, doing a careful physical exam. And then some things that I use in my practice, I try to avoid too many CT scans. But, you know, sometimes doing a repeat CT scan a few months later to see if there still looks like there's inflammation or even, you know, three or four weeks in when a patient really hasn't had response to antibiotics to see if they're the small segment of patients that's gone on to have a complication or that just hasn't improved with antibiotics. 
I often use fecal calprotectin, although the evidence is very, very slim on that. But when I'm really puzzling, I'm really having trouble, I might get a fecal calprotectin. Although what cutoffs to use, there aren't literature. I think we struggle with this even in inflammatory bowel disease. What does a fecal calprotectin just above the upper limit of normal mean? But when I'm getting values in the you know 200 range, 300 range, I'm pretty certain that there's ongoing inflammation. And then in some cases, I really I do another I do a flexible sigmoidoscopy if I've already done a colonoscopy, a very gentle one just to scoot into that area and say, oh, it is edematous. I do still see that erythema. This does really look like ongoing inflammation. So those are the sorts of things that I use to try and differentiate irritable bowel syndrome from ongoing diverticulitis. That's a tough problem for gastroenterologists to figure out. So uh, he, this uh, patient of yours had suffered quite a bit. Then nobody wants to have colon surgery, right? Then we all want to keep our colon intact. How do you actually put the pros and cons of continued medical management versus surgery in someone who's been having recurrent episodes of uncomplicated diverticulitis? Complicated is pretty straightforward. Complicated is more straightforward, for sure. I look at a number of factors, all sort of around quality of life. Mm -hmm. If someone has one or two or fewer episodes per year, they resolve pretty readily, either with a short course of antibiotics or with no antibiotics. I tend to shy away from recommending surgery. But in patients who've had you know, months and months of months of symptoms that do not get better or briefly get better with antibiotics, they may have been in the hospital a couple of times, they're missing work, they're losing weight, they haven't been able to progress to a normal diet, and the symptoms do seem to be related to colon inflammation. You know, I try multiple courses of antibiotics to avoid surgery, prolonged episodes of antibiotics. But if we've gotten to that point, I do start to consider talking about surgery. And the way I sort of frame it is that surgery has a lot of about a 10, 15% risk of upfront complications. And those complications tend to happen in the first 30, 60 days. So you're looking at this upfront risk of complications, but studies have suggested, several studies, randomized trials have suggested that quality of life in the long run is better and that your risk of recurrence will go from somewhere around 30% probably even higher if they've had multiple episodes in the past, down to somewhere around 5 to 10%. And so you're really looking at, okay, the trade-off is I'm, I'm going to have this surgery, I'm going to be in the hospital, I'm going to have this recovery time. There's a 10 to 15% chance of having a complication. But most people after the first year do not have a stoma. That tends to be the patient's biggest fear is, am I going to be left with a bag? Most patients are not. 95 plus percent of patients do not have a stoma one year after surgery. And then the risk of recurrence and the quality of life tends to be better. So it's this sort of weighing and everybody has, there are patients who love the idea of something definitive and aren't so afraid of surgery. And then there are those that are very reluctant to undergo surgery. This particular patient was one of those patients that was reluctant but was really, really miserable and had failed really everything that we could offer. And so the, the discussion with her was, you know, you're suffering now. And I 
I had a, I, I had a thought and heard a lot of these patients that ultimately go to surgery, their colons look really awful. And you wonder how they got through. And this particular patient, that was true. And when I get the sense that that's going on, you know, try to at least get them to see a surgeon that will sit down and talk to them carefully. I don't think I'm the one to talk in any detailed way about what surgery is like, what the risks of surgery are, but try to refer them to a surgeon that I have a relationship with that I think will talk about it in terms of those pros and cons to make that decision on a, a very important step in their care. A couple of things. Do you have a support group in your practice, somebody who has gone through diverticulitis surgery, that group is uh, interested in talking to patients and saying, hey, this this is uh, this has been my journey, and let me share that. Maybe it will help you in your own decision. That's a really good point. In my practice, I do not. In some of the studies that are ongoing, we do have patients that are part of helping us design the study. There are multiple online groups. There's Facebook group, et cetera, that are available to patients. I'm not sure that the information that patients get from those groups is always the most accurate. So mm -hmm. we do have an IBS support group and, and have thought about forming a diverticulitis support group, but do not yet have one in our institution. Mm -hmm. So I... Uh... I want to share this. You know, you may be wondering why I have read your article multiple times, but I've read it. One thing that struck me was uh, you have this uh, so-called smoldering diverticulitis. The pathologist looks at the specimen. They still continue to have abscesses. And although clinically we go by in a week treatment, a weeks long of antibiotics or maybe two weeks, What's the longest period that you're given antibiotics for somebody who said, no, I don't want surgery? I start with a 14-day course. I don't know the longest. I've probably given at least three stacked 14-day courses. I try to switch up the antibiotics. If someone's really suffering and really still reluctant to undergo surgery, I've admitted patients to the hospital for IV antibiotics. I've tried a number of things, but I would say giving a 14-day course in the situation, if they're not improved, if they can tolerate or are not allergic to a different course, try a different course, and then last ditch some IV antibiotics. And maybe even consult with, with your infectious disease colleagues. I've done that in the past as well. See what they have to offer. I've learned a lot from your manuscript, and also this discussion has helped me a lot. Our goal for the gastro grand rounds is to help trainees learn cognitive aspects of gastroenterology, listening to an expert like yourself. So how about summarizing some take-home messages and being a leader in this field? Uh, if you can throw in some ideas for fellows to consider as a potential research projects. Yeah, again, it's been my pleasure. I guess this case, what I'd like to summarize and conclude with is that this case is one of the more extreme cases that I thought was important for a GI audience to understand the subtleties of treating this disorder. But the vast majority of patients with diverticulosis, meaning we do a screening colonoscopy and we find it, will not go on to have diverticulitis, let alone you know, refractory smoldering diverticulitis. And I think that's a really important point to tell our patients when they leave our endoscopy unit, 
You know, there's a greater than 95% chance nothing will ever happen to you. It's also an opportunity to tell them to eat healthy and live a healthy lifestyle, but not to be too nervous. But then also on the flip side, to be really perceptive that some patients do have a smoldering course and to do your best to differentiate that from irritable bowel syndrome. One thing we didn't talk about a lot that a lot of my research is focused on is is the value of diet and lifestyle changes to reduce the risk. So in all of my patients, I really take this as an opportunity to say, you know, let's try to eat more healthy, try to exercise. If your weight is above what we recommend, try to get that down. And it's it really can be eye-opening to patients when they're told they have high blood pressure, they don't feel it. When they've had diverticulitis, they're really motivated. So it's a good opportunity to, to shift the focus to really use our surgical colleagues in shared responsibility with these patients to have a discussion when it comes down to whether we're considering surgery and also to discuss with our radiology colleagues what they can gather from the films using their expert trained eyes. And then in terms of research topics, the field is really so ripe for a lot of research. I think prevention is the holy grail. When these patients have had recurrent episodes and you can offer them dietary interventions, you know, is there a possibility of some sort of pharmacologic means to prevent this disease is, is really a hot topic or an important topic. I think we talked about standardizing how we assess diverticulosis when we do endoscopy. There have been some efforts, there's something called the DECA score, but I think there are other ways that we can learn to standardize how we assess this disease and how those might have clinical correlates are things, especially with an endoscopic database or with just some time with careful recording that might be a more easy topic for someone to tackle. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's a wonderful presentation. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.